If you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation this morning, chapter 3 will be there. For those who would be guests here, we are in the book of Revelation and have been for a number of weeks. We are working through chapters 2 and 3 where the Lord Jesus Christ Himself is writing to seven distinct churches that existed in a place called Asia Minor, that would be modern day Turkey. And He's um, walking in their midst, telling them what He is observing, and uh, really helping them to serve Him in a greater way. So, this morning we find our way into the third chapter. So, if I could, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to stand. We'll get right to it this morning. <clears throat> if you are new to our study, um, I have gone a little bit along every week. And there's a lot packed in these letters. So, we're going to get right to it. That way uh, you can get home to spend time with your family today and have a, have a great Mother's Day. In the third chapter of the book of Revelation, verse number 1, the Bible says this, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, The seven spirits of God, <clears throat> or these things saith the, hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, and that thou livest, and art dead. And so here the Lord is speaking of a reputation that's really that all that they have. They have a name, but their present works don't match their name anymore. So I know that you have a name, but in reality you're not alive, but dead. So verse 2, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect or complete before me. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white, <coughs> in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. And he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You so much, Lord, for this day, the opportunity to assemble here, sing Your praises. Lord, to look into Your Word. Lord, I, I hope and pray and trust to do business with it. Lord, I, I pray even now as we quiet our hearts that we would, Lord, we, we intend to interact with the Holy Spirit speaking to us today. Lord, as we examine ourselves, as we apply this litmus test, this APGAR test, Lord, if we look at our own spiritual vitality, Lord, we, we all here, we have a name, Lord, both as individuals, Lord, as members of a church. But Lord, I pray You'd help us to pry beneath that and Lord, to examine the spiritual health, Lord, both of our church and our own hearts. And Lord, I pray, if we're found wanting or lacking, that we would, we would do what You ask here and we would address that want, that need, and Lord, align ourselves in a greater relationship with You. And I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much 
for standing. This letter to the church at Sardis brings us to the most severe rebuke from Christ yet to any of the seven churches. Up to this point, Christ has offered, I, I say, a critique to each of the churches He has written to. Now, before the critique, He has manifest His love. He has spoken of His affection. He, he's, he's talked about His sacrifice. Um, he has referenced the totality of His gift to them. And, and as their Master, as their Savior, He reserves the right to look at them and say, here's some great things in your life. Here's some great things in, in the life of your church, but I have somewhat against thee. Here's some areas that you could improve. The Lord was always very quick to compliment, to acknowledge what was good and right. That's something that all of us should endeavor to do as well in our relationship with others. But when we've earned the right, or in this case, of course, the Lord has, we love someone best and most by, be, by extending ourselves and saying, you can be better served by living in this way, by, by doing these things. And, and that's what the Lord has done. But when He comes to Sardis, we find no commendation. We, we find no positive attributes. There's a little bit here at the end that's really just more of the absence of the negative than a presence of a positive. But we find in this church at Sardis a rebuke. The only noteworthy praise in Sardis was that a few had not yet fully corrupted themselves with the world. Sardis was the most ancient of the churches that Jesus addresses in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. It has a, a, the oldest date of history in antiquity dating back to the year about 1200 B.C. Once upon a time, Sardis was the capital of the famed Lydian Empire. It was an empire that was so great that it actually rivaled the Persian Empire for a time. Uh, we would know about Cyrus the Great in Persia. Uh, this was the king who lived in the days of Daniel. And we know the fame of Persia who conquered Babylon and then Babylon court, uh, conquered Assyria. But the Lydian Empire was a, was a great empire itself once upon a time. It was situated west towards the Roman road. Uh, it wasn't the westward most church, but it was leaning upon that way. And it rested in what is known as the Alluvian Hills and most conspicuously upon a 1,500-foot high Acropolis. Now, many of these churches had uh, resided in cities that were known for something. And in Sardis, it was really its location that was most famous um, in Sardis. It overlooked a valley with a river below. But the city, which in antiquity was small, rested on an Acropolis on top of this hill. On three sides, the sides were so steep they was considered impassable. Certainly animals could not be gotten up and down the hills, and for the most part it was not thought that people could. On the fourth side there was a great slope, not as steep as the rest, but it was full of um, embankments and, and, and fortifications. City, the city of Sardis was one that was thought to be unconquerable because of its situation upon this Acropolis. The river below was also quite famous. Um, for a time, legend had it that Midas himself um, strewn gold all throughout the river. And of course, the Sardinians here, these people who lived in Sardis, um, did gather the real gold that was there. 
It was in Sardis that history teaches us that uh, coins were first minted in both gold and silver. So Sardis had quite a history. But relevant to the text, Sardis was one of the most feared city-states that ever existed. Um, it was thought that defeating Sardis in its city was an unthinkable and an undoable task. The ancients actually had a parable for this, saying, well, that would be like conquering Sardis. If something was very hard or they thought could not be done, they would be saying, like, well, that's like conquering Sardis. In other words, you can't do it. It's not possible. The situation is just too difficult. And so uh, the city of Sardis had, like the church in it, a reputation. It had a name. Um, but unfortunately for Sardis, its greatest days were behind it. And in the writing, the days of the Apostle John to the church, the city was already in considerable decline. It had a reputation, but it was not what it once was. There was something that happened, matter of fact, to stain its reputation. Um, there was a great king in Sardis who um, became a little too arrogant. And this king, living, his name was Croesus, he lived in the day of Cyrus, king of Persia. He thought that he was equal to the Persian Empire, and they actually invaded Persia. Well, once there they found they were no match for the Persian army, but they retreated back into Sardis, not knowing whether Cyrus would follow or not. But in fact, Cyrus did. And still feeling smug, they were so confident in the inability for their city to be overcome that they literally failed to put watchmen on the walls. Well, the Persians watched for weeks that turned into months surrounding the city. And one day they saw a soldier descend from the backside of Sardis down a crevice. Uh, it was a crevice just large enough for one man all the way down. And then more remarkable, worked his way back up with something that was dropped. And the Persians had spied away to get into the city. So one, this, is, this is a historical truth. So one by one, the Persian soldiers began to climb up this wall, literally in single file, reaching the walls. They were not protected because they were thought that no one could do this. Enough men scaled the walls, crossed the top, made their way to the gates, opened it for the larger army. And the unthinkable, this city for such a great reputation of being unconquerable, was conquered. It was quite a lesson about, as we'll see in the text later, not being watchful, not being on guard. Now, this actually happened again centuries later. So a lesson was taught that even the mighty can fall when they are not watchful, when their walls are unguarded. Well, this was the great failure of the church in Sardis. They lived on a past reputation. They, they had settled um, into a great status quo, having achieved great things, having even maybe thinking great things about themselves. The reality of their thinking was not matched by the way they were living. And, and, and so the reputation was one of being alive. But in truth, they were much weaker than that. So, so attenuated was their situation that Jesus calls them spiritually dead. 
It's interesting to note in this study of the book of Sardis something that is absent, that is seen in almost every other church. It is not said that the people in the church of Sardis were ever persecuted. Of course, we know the people in Pergamos were persecuted. The people in Thyatira were persecuted. Um, really, all the previous churches where there was a Christian church, those people suffered a level. But this is cur- a persecution. Which this, is, this was very curious because it's absent here. And evidently, Sardis was so deeply aligned with the pagan city that the city had no angst with them. It is found in antiquity, one of the largest Jewish synagogues in all of history. There was a Jewish synagogue there that was over a, a, a 300 feet wide. It, they had a, the city boasted a population of, of, of tens of thousands of Jews. We, we know historically that between the pagans of the city and the Jewish constituency, that the Christians suffer from both of those fronts. But in a city with many Jews and a very conspicuous pagan um, temples and religion, there's no mention of any of those people having a problem with the, the Christians in Sardis. It's, it, it is something to note. There was evidently a peaceful coexistence between the church members of Sardis and the pagan world and the religious world around them, which is something that had not existed in a church until Sardis. These were people who made no waves. They took no stances. And again, they were, in terms of relevance in the culture, making a difference, they're dead. They were there. They probably made a good show. They looked the part, but they were making no dent for Christ. If we look at the text very quickly to work our way through this, we're going to see here again the opening of the letter written by, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ addressed to the angel who we believe for the most part probably is representative of a pastor, of an overseer of the church, someone who'd be responsible in part for the spiritual condition of the city. And in each one of these letters, Christ identifies himself in a particular trait that is emphasized from chapter one to highlight the need of that church. And so in this case, it's very interesting that Christ uh, identifies himself in terms of the Holy Spirit. And he says, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God, and who's watching basically over the seven angels representing the seven churches. Well, we've studied now a couple of times that the seven spirits of God is kind of representative of the perfection of the Holy Spirit. In Zechariah chapter 4, which we're studying right now on Wednesday nights, we talked about the seven spirits of God or the seven eyes of God. This is a metaphor. Again, number seven representing some kind of completion, some kind of perfection. I honestly, don't know in the entirety what all this implies. I know this. It is a reference to the Holy Spirit of God walking among the pastors in the seven churches as it did in Pergamos, as it did in Zechariah's day, with his eyes going to and fro over the whole earth, looking who he may give strength to on his behalf. So he says to the church, again, I'm, I'm here watching, I'm looking. The Holy Spirit's here. Um, and of course, we know the, the, the Holy Spirit is active in our lives and should be. So what he's basically saying, I'm the source of life. I'm the one with the seven spirits. And I'm looking at you and you have none. You have no life. You you have no animation of the Spirit in you. I I see no activity of my Holy Spirit in your midst. This is the idea of the Holy Spirit 
who is at work in the churches, but obviously inactive, not because the Spirit's not present, but because of the unwillingness of these church members to engage them in his heart. They had forsaken the work of the Holy Ghost. And now they only had a reputation of once knowing Christ and the Holy Spirit, but are now dead, inactive, without influence, making no difference in their city for Christ, perhaps even their own life at all. Here's where people, okay, going through the motions, they were living what I'm going to call a nominal Christian life. They took the name, to borrow from the scripture, they had a, they had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. In other words, the power of Christ was not evidenced in their life by their present works of what they were doing. Yes, maybe once upon a time they had done something. They had served Christ. They had given themselves. They had extended. They had served. They had sacrificed. But, but that was just a reputation now. That was in the past. And, and examining them today, things looked a little inactive there. Things did not look like they once did. Again, they were dead. Okay, you guys, you all understand a dead church, don't you? Okay. Um, <clears throat> have you ever traveled, and don't like shake your head too hard, but have you ever traveled <clears throat> and you've gone to, to a church and you walked in the doors and then your summary description of the church leaving was, that was a dead church. Now we're just looking, that's, that's probably a little unfair and that may not be, you know, hopefully it's not judgmental, but we get the idea, don't we? What are we saying? There's no activity there. There's no animation there. Those people weren't really singing the way you're supposed to sing to God. The pe no one said amen. No one was involved. No one responded to the invitation. No one shook my hand. It just felt like they were going through the motions. They had a reputation for a name. It's on the church board outside. But inside, they were full of dead men's bones. It was dead. It was dead. And so we understand what that means. Evidently somewhere in the life of the church, they stopped giving themselves the spiritual effort that they once did. They stopped living by faith. There was no new efforts or exploits for Christ. They were beginning to slowly um, acquiesce to the culture. They, they just became another religious establishment in the city. And no longer a dynamic force for Christ. And so that's who they were. So in verse 2, we, we find five imperatives, five things that Christ says to them to do in response to this internal condition of heart and institution. He says, be watchful. Okay, the idea of watchful here, it, it, it might be said this way, you need to be more introspective. You need to do some self-examination. Okay, look up here for a second, everyone. This is what I spend every week doing. The whole point we preach a sermon is good job or not, I don't know, but hopefully enough truth is held up that you look in the mirror of the Word of God and that truth and go, how do I look in comparison to that thought? And if I don't see the image of Christ looking me back in the face, I have work to do. Okay? Seeing yourself there is not what you want to see. And that's what he's telling them to do. You need to give a better look into yourself. Look in those, the mirror of the Word of God and see what you see there. And if you don't see Jesus, you're seeing the wrong thing. Be watchful. 
Strengthen what remains. Evidently, there was enough vitality somewhere deep down inside for them to regain the former strength they once had. So he says, strengthen that which remains. Remember, remember where you came from. Remember the day you were saved. Remember what the Holy Spirit did from you. Remember the depths of sin you came from. Remember the life that you lived for Christ. And why have you let all that go? Why are we now in the status quo? If there's something good, hold fast to that, to these truths and, and repent. And repentance is not some... You know, it's like revival. It's not some grand supernatural event where the Spirit comes in here and says, revival? Oh, revival and repentance is me saying, man, I don't match up with that. And by the help of the grace of God, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to move to a greater likeness of the image of Christ. And so Christ tells them to do this. They had slid into complacency, a spiritual slumber. They had stopped watching they were not guarding their heart, guarding their spirit. They were losing the first love. As a matter of fact, they had no love. They were now living on a claim. But they weren't living the life. It reminds me of Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul was admonishing the Ephesian church to be the followers of God, not the followers of culture. And he says this to them in Ephesians 5. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See that you walk circumspectly. Get your head up. Act like you're involved in the game. Be a part of things. Not as fools, but as the wise. He says, You should be involved in redeeming the time because the, the days are evil. Not just going to church and going home and going to church and going home. Listen to the sermon and never responding, never changing, never growing, never living, never showing any faith. Like, stop that. Look up here. Wake up. Arise thou that sleepest. Arise from the dead. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast. You know, sometimes the devil comes at us head on and attacking us, and sometimes he just allows life to be cushy enough for us that we just go to sleep. And in both cases, the equal amount of damage is done. We become irrelevant for Christ. And then one day we wake up like Samson and we wish not that the Holy Spirit's gone from us. We don't have the power to do what we once did. And we're, we're dead. That's the idea of Jesus coming as a thief. So he, he's saying here, this is, all, this is found often in the New Testament. He says, if you don't fix this, I want you to get this idea. I'm going to come like a thief. So, so it's not, the, the idea is, is not paying attention. It's like one day you're going to wake up and everything you had is going to be gone because you didn't pay attention. And it's going to be just like a thief took it. But the truth is you've been handing it away a day and a week and a month and a year at a time. It's just going to become apparent to you one day, I'm dead. I've lost my faith, I've lost my family, I've lost my home, I lost my job, I lost my courage, I lost everything. It's just like a thief came and took it, but the truth is you've been given away for a long, long time because you've not been watchful and vigilant. Matthew 24, 36 alludes, watch therefore. 2 Peter 3, 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night unexpectedly. 1 Thessalonians 5 says the same idea. If we're not careful, we're not watching, we're not on guard, then a day is going to come for us that we're not prepared for. And that day had, was fast approaching for the church at Sardis. 
All of this should call us to attention, to a guardedness. In Revelation chapter 3, the church at Sardis was failing. They were in the process of completely dying and would soon completely be dead if they were not awoken, if they didn't pay attention, if they didn't get up. Verses 4 through 6 is an acknowledgement that there had been a few. There was a few people in the church of many, don't know how many, there's a few who still had a name and a reputation that matched their deeds. And I suppose every church has those people. But in Sardis, the majority of those people were few. He says, if you, if you follow me, if you stay true to me, if you persevere, this is found in every letter, then one day you'll walk with me. The metaphor used in this text is you'll walk with me in white. White was a form of purity. It was, it was, like, it was talking about the days when you'd be in heaven. Um, he says, you, you'll, you'll walk with me in white. Your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. You're, you're, by the way, our names have to be there to go to heaven. And listen, it's not that it's erased. It's just a question, has it, was it ever written? Okay, those are different things. This isn't about qualifying for heaven. It's about authenticity. Okay. Because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean you are one. Okay, that's not authentic enough. I can say anything is gold. It just takes a little test to see if it is. Okay, that's what he's saying here. And if you are, okay, look up here. Once you get this, it's not that real Christians are perfect. It's not that they don't fall down. It's not even that they can have evidently seasons where they, they, they really fall back. It's just they've got to have a spiritual pulse. You've got to care. When you hear stuff like this, it, it needs to do something to the spirit in here. And if it does nothing, that's scary. This isn't again about merit or anything, it's about authenticity. True Christians give real effort over a lifetime to be like Christ. It's possible for all of us, even the best of Christians, to be lulled to sleep for a time to be backslidden, to be stained in the, in the metaphorical garments of Christ. Okay, I, I think I've already made my application, but I'll do it again, okay? And I have a single thought of application today. Doesn't mean it'll be shorter, it just means I have one. <laughs> Watchfulness and spiritual evaluation need to be an ongoing dynamic in your life. That's it. Okay, I'll say it again because everyone in this room needs to do this today. Watchfulness and spiritual evaluation for health needs to be an ongoing dynamic in the Christian life all the time. Years ago, um, I, I don't know how Terry could tell me. She's a woman. She knows. Um, years ago, we found a family doctor. 
Okay, I, as I was getting older, this was probably my early 40s, I don't know, I found a family doctor and I'm thinking, I'm getting older, I need someone to help me monitor my health long term. I don't want to try to find a doctor in the moment of crisis, I want to find some guy who knows me forever. And the, the good and bad news is I found a guy my exact same age, so if he retires, I'm probably going to be in trouble, but anyway. I found, I found a family doctor. I go see him every six months. Now some may go once a year, whatever. Um, I, I go every six months, I get a blood panel. Um, the reasons I do that, but I go every six months, I see my doctor, we have a conversation, we even have a conversation through the patient portal stuff. I, I'm in process of evaluating my physical health on an ongoing basis. I don't want to be caught off guard one day. I still might be, but to the, to the extent that I can prevent that, I'm working on that, okay? The impetus was, for that was an event. There was a time in life, because of a lot of circumstances, that I found myself in a situation that I thought something was seriously, seriously wrong with me. So, um, in a crisis moment, I went to the doctor, made a trip to the hospital, had some tests done, and short story was basically this, you know, things in here are working right, but things in here probably weren't. I don't mean necessarily mentally, I hope. I'm talking about emotionally. Actually, things in here weren't working right. That's probably dangerous right there. That may, that's, that's probably coming. And when it does, you'll know. Um, <laughs> I'm in trouble. And it was, it was stress for me, and it had accumulated for far too long without any real remedy, and I was suffering for it. And so, you know, I have a conversation with my doctor about these things a little bit now, and I do things, I hopefully, a little bit better. But the point is, something snuck up on me I wasn't ready for. And many of you, and I know some of you have been through that experience and much worse than I, I did. But, you know, months were given to recovery. And for some people, that turns into years. So, you know, giving attention to emotional health and physical health, because these things can be stolen away from us until one day, like a thief, wow, where'd that come from? The point that's obviously applicable here is we need to make similar inspection of our spiritual life too. I, I, I'm not here to tell you exactly how to do that. I know the Word of God. I think being in church, those, those are super important. But you know, when I discovered that my life was being lived in such a way that it could have had negative health consequences for, for me, you know what I did? I changed my life. Not totally, completely. I made some alterations that are part of my routine and schedule to this day. Okay, now listen, I want you to get this. When I saw and did a physical examination of my life, I made changes based on what the doctor told me. We come to church every week and we hear from the Word of God. And it's a script for you. When's the last time you filled it? I don't mean listen to the script. Did something with the script. Our life requires inspection. Not only from the corruption, from the influence of the world, but our own hearts. You know, you take a pond, you take a lake, you take a, a sea, the Dead Sea in Israel. And if there's not stuff coming in, 
And there's not stuff going out. That's, that's called stagnation. And what's left is poison. And I'm going to tell you something. If your life has been status quo, status quo for a long time, that's trouble. But I, is it status quo? Do you have a name? Question, what are you doing today? Stagnation destroys in every way. If we are not careful and truly examine our lives and we don't strengthen that which remains, if we don't get past status quo, which most likely is not status quo, it's actually sinking down, if, if we've not stepped out in faith, if we're not doing things we should, we may have already lost more than we realize. You know, when I don't use the weights like I once did, my muscles atrophy, they weaken. And when we don't exercise the spiritual disciplines of the Word of God, then we're going to be spiritually anemic, attenuated. We're going to atrophy. And we need, when faced with this, to repent, to change, to strengthen what remains, grow. We need to reflect and go back as in, in, in Church of Ephesus, do those first things again. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I got to make a point, because sometimes I just like people listen, so I'm going to give you some super implicit instructions here. Please don't anyone not listen, okay? In a second, I'm going to ask everyone to stand. This is not the invitation. This is before the invitation. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you some questions. No matter what I say, I want you to stay standing. You with me? Okay. I'm going to invite you to sit. But I'm telling you right now, I don't want you to, because then you'll expose us. But I want you to go through the mental exercise. And if you sit, you won't do it. So everybody stand up, if you can. If you can't, that's fine. We're going to take a spiritual vitality test. You with me? We're going to take a spiritual vitality test. We're going to see how badly we need to strengthen whatever remains. This is an, an exercise, okay? Now, until I look at you and say, please, all of you sit down, everyone, please still stay up. You just keep a mental note in your head. You with me? Okay. Spiritually alive or more dead than you realize? When was the last time you fasted? What? Fasted. You know, went without food for spiritual purposes of, let's say, three days or more in the last five years. When was the last time you fasted for more than three days? Because I'm going to assume something in the last five years would be spiritually significant enough for you to need to fast. Okay? Now, don't do this. But if you had done that, then you could be seated. Okay? Don't want you to be seated. But if you had fasted for three days more in the last five years, then you could be seated. Because you will have done something that would indicate you're spiritually alive. If you have led someone to Christ, we're all dumb that down. If there is another human being in this church because of your personal efforts in the last year, you can sit down. If you've gotten alone for at least a day, 
not necessarily without food, but just a day because of it's important to seek God. We go to work every day. We come to church, but I mean just you and God. I got alone for one day in the last five years. Then you could be seated. Because he was priority enough for you to do that exercise. Alive or dead. When's the last time you repaired a really broken relationship because of the grace of God in your heart? And you apologized or forgave someone and you went on because that's what Christ would have you do in the last year, two years, three years. Well, if you've done that, you could sit down. When was the last time that you responded to an invitation? In the last year, when was the last time you came forward? In the last three years? In the last five years? And is there seriously, seriously, nothing in your life that would require that? I don't know what test you're using. Okay, let's, let's, let's dub this way down. If you read your Bible this week, you can sit down. Just opened your Bible and read it this week, you can sit down. If you got on your knees and prayed this week, you can sit down. If you passed out a track in the last month, you can sit down. I can go on. Are we concerned yet? I don't want to be unkind. There's going to be a lot of you that are still standing. And that's a problem. Okay, now I am asking you all for me to have a seat. Now, you, you can put a, a conjunction in here real, real quick and say, but. Okay, and a but may be warranted, and I'm not here to judge you. But I want to ask you this question. Exactly what metrics are you using? But I, I, I am because I say I am. Okay? That's between you and the Lord. I can look at my doctor and say, well, I, I think this is the, the reality of my medical condition. He's like, I got the test right here, man. What well, makes us think? How can our hearts be so diseased that we can think that we have a name, but we can't pass a single spiritual test? Let, let me give you, I'll give you the test, the one the Bible gives in the, in the text. It says this, if you confess me before men, then one day when you stand before me, I'll confess you before the angels and my heavenly Father. That's just, that's, that's real simple, right? If I confess you before men. Okay, I, what, what does that mean completely? I don't know, it's pretty broad. It could mean that you tell people you're a Christian. It could mean that you took a stance for morality and ethics. 
But in Char Char Sardis, they were so indistinguishable. There was no stand for Christ. There, there was, in other words, they evidently were not, people didn't even know they were a Christian. So again, can you identify the time when someone else in this world know, knew you're a Christian? That they observed enough in your life, in your ethics, in your work, in your testimony, in your words, in your stance, in your morality or something that it's evident enough to warrant Christ saying, yeah, he's one of mine. How could you not know that? Did you not watch his life? He confessed me here and he confessed me there. He sacrificed, he gave, he served, he witnessed. He, he, he fasted, prayed. Of course he's mine. Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man confess before the angels of God. Luke 12. But he that denieth me. How about this? Just marginalizes, ignores me before men. Shall be denied before the angels of God. I'll give you one last test. If what I have said stirs you a little bit, you might be okay. But if what I have said has made you mad, you might be in trouble. Living things are pretty obvious that they're living things. They manifest life. The church at Sardis wasn't. This isn't about doing X number of things. It's a matter of how authentic am I really? How authentic is my Christianity? How about this? You're okay if there's enough in you today to want to change. With God's help, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pass out a track. I'm going to get on my knees and spend some time with Him. I've got to get past just having a name to being the person. It, if that speaks to you at all, well, then maybe we're okay. We just have some work to do.